Well, everybody that knows what that means to be redeemed, you got to say something. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm, you know, I don't know. But if you know what that means, it's touched you and it's changed you at the very core of who you are forever. And how grateful, eternally grateful we are to Jesus for doing that. For those of you that are doing the read through the Bible thing with us, this coming week you're going to read verse after verse after verse about how redemption happened. The price that Christ paid. And for those of you that haven't been doing the reading with us, let me just make this request of you. How about for one week? Do the readings of this week. It's listed in your program what week that is. You can go to the website. You can get the reading chart and just get into to the, this week's readings. And take a fresh look at what has happened in the scheme of eternity for you. So, every Sunday when we gather in this place, I'm aware that some of us come into this room with a variety of things going on in our lives that are very difficult and very hard. And some of you have some vocational things, some financial things, some relational things, some health things, and they all are important. They all matter. The Bible has things to say about all those things. God cares and God can make a difference. God does make a difference. He'll answer prayers. We pray for you about those kinds of things. So we're in touch with that. But having said all that, today I want to move right past all of what I'm going to call the superficial, on-the-surface issues that we deal with. And I, when I say that, I realize how weighty some of it is for some of you. But I want to press right down to the core, to the, the foundation, the heart of where everything else springs from. And that is this matter of redemption. Because even if God does something to help your finances, if He does something to help your relationships, if He does something to help your health, but you remain unredeemed, friend, your life is undone. Even though the circumstances feel a little bit better, even though the pain has been relieved to whatever degree, your life is totally undone if you are unredeemed. And so I want to spend the next few minutes talking about that and talking about what God's up to with redemption and how that plays out in us once we are redeemed for the rest of our days. So we're going to start a little academically to talk about a couple of definitions. And the first is, what are we talking about with redemption? What are we talking about to redeem? And basically, it's that uh, idea of buying something back, recovering something that's been lost. It's also the process of releasing us from blame or releasing us from a debt. Uh, theologically and ultimately it's about being free from the consequences of sin. So just kind of park that definition in your heart for a moment. And then I also want us to think about passion. Mike used that word a few times in his story and he used it accurately. One of the ways that we tend to think about passion is just basically it's an intense emotion. It's something that we feel strongly about. And that can happen relationally in such a way that we have strong sexual kinds of feelings. And God wires us that way. All that's fine. And we'll, we talk about that on other occasions. Passion can also be expressed in intense 
feelings of anger or, or being quick-tempered. But those things are all secondary notions, secondary meanings to what passion really is all about. In fact, uh, some of you have learned that passion is so important in the ways that we just talked about. Um, if you've been applying for a job, you probably prepare yourself for the question, what do you feel passionate about? What do you feel strongly about? And so you may talk about, well, I feel strongly about making a difference and being benevolent and doing charitable things and helping out with the fight against cancer. So it's great to talk about all that, to be engaged in all that. But the word actually comes from an old Greek word. Pasco, which means to suffer. And thus we speak of the last days of Jesus' life and His going to the cross as what? The passion of Christ. Oh yeah, He felt strongly about it. It was an intense thing. It was very emotional. But at the core of it all, it's suffering. And so, where we're headed in these next few minutes is to do just a quick survey of the Scriptures about what the passion of Christ looked like and what it was about and what its invitation to us is. But before we do that, I want to remind us of a contemporary picture. It's a, it's a story that I've talked about around here uh, before, and I want to get into it again. A few years ago, when the Iraq War was really in a heated stage, um, there was one particular skirmish that happened on the northeastern side of Baghdad. And it was, it was pretty hot. It was, it was pretty involved. There was a lot of casualties that were going on. And uh, with one particular uh, patrol, there were four guys in a Humvee, and suddenly a grenade landed in the Humvee with them. Now, Ross McGinnis, Private First Class, saw the grenade come in because he was up top. And his training was this. You see a grenade, you yell grenade, and then you leap from the vehicle. He'd been trained over and over and over and over again to do that. Uh, it was like second nature to him now. But he sees the grenade, and it falls all the way down into the pit of the Humvee where his three comrades are. And he knows there's no hope. I can yell grenade and I can leap, but they can't get out. They're going to die. And this is all split second, right? So he totally goes against his training, and some other kind of intuitive force begins to impact him. And he dives down into the bottom of the Humvee, and he envelops the grenade into his body, and he absorbs overwhelming uh, amount of the impact so that the other three guys, who all took shrapnel from it, but all lived at the sacrifice of his life. One of those that had been saved by McGinnis, Ian Newland, sergeant, went on later to give this story and this testimony 
when posthumously uh, McGinnis was given several military awards, Newland spoke at that gathering and said, I'm forever grateful that at the cost of his life, he saved my life. And he said, I can't be near my wife and smell her hair without thinking about McGinnis and his sacrifice. I cannot touch the soft skin of my baby girl without thinking of the sacrifice that McGinnis had expended. I can't do anything in life without thinking about the sacrifice of McGinnis. I will live my life to the fullest because he can no longer live. And friends, that story moves me because on its superficial level, it's such a powerful account of how one guy loves his brothers and will give his life for them. It's, it moves me in that way, you know, all of itself. But I can't help but think about Jesus when I hear that story because that is the gospel story. That He gave His life horrifically with great suffering so that you and I can be redeemed. Now, go on this little journey with me. And you're going to be reading all about this in detail, so I'm just hitting some real quick high spots about all of it. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus showed His disciples. So He's telling them up front, before it even begins to unfold, He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. Now, they don't get it. You know, it's a progressive thing for them. They begin to get it more and more as things are unfolding. But at this point, he's like, I've got to go there and I've got to suffer. And they're like, what? Then we're told, uh, verse uh, 12 of chapter 17, the Son of Man is going to suffer. We're told in Luke 17, 25, he must suffer many things and be rejected. We're told in... Chapter 22, verse 15, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So as he's getting ready to go to the upper room and have this last meal with them, he knows it's happening just before his passion. Luke 24, 16, it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to enter his glory. And then on the other side of it, Acts 1, 3, kind of looking back, Jesus had presented himself alive to his disciples, a resurrection appearance after his suffering. Acts 3.18, the prophets backing way up. See, this was all foretold. They announced that the Christ would suffer. Now, turn the page a little bit, and as you continue through the development of the church and the unfolding of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and we are introduced to a guy that we will call the Apostle Paul, Acts 9.16, Jesus says, I'm going to have to show Paul how much he is going to have to suffer for my name's sake. 2 Corinthians 1.6, Paul began to be a quick learner because as he's out on these journeys planting churches in various cities, in 2 Corinthians 1.6 he says, if we, talking about his party of missionaries, are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation. We suffer for your benefit. Philippians 1.29, Paul said, For you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 
in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, affirming the believers in Thessalonica, he said, you suffered at the hands of Thessalonian unbelievers, just as believers in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews. And then, just to turn a page to the Apostle Peter, when you begin to read his letters and his correspondence, 1 Peter 3.14, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And then he went on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. You've got to begin to get it. If you're going to be redeemed, if you're going to reap the benefit of Christ's suffering for you, part of that will be expressed in your own suffering. And in 1 Peter 4.15, now make sure you're suffering for Christ. Make sure you're suffering for righteousness. Make sure you're suffering for the gospel, not suffering because you're doing stupid stuff. Not suffering because you're sinning. Don't let any of you suffer as an evil doer, he said. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, Yet if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Now, let me wrap it up. 1 Peter 4, 19, Those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The Apostle understands this is no small thing. This is a trust factor. God's involved. God's all over this. God's going to use this. I I don't enjoy it. I don't particularly want it. But I'm going to go through this trusting Him. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, we're exhorted, resist the devil, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Verse 20, or verse 10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now friends, these things have not been hidden from us. They've been made very plain and very clear. It's not something that we talk about a whole lot. It's not something that we give much focus to because we tend to give more focus to the more superficial issues. God, can you help with this? Can you help with that? Yes, He can. But more at the core, more at the foundation of it all, He's going to be doing something deeply within you that results in your life being given away in a way that somebody else gets life, finds life. In Christ. And so, Jesus summed it up at the end of the Gospel of John that you'll be reading about this week this way, speaking to His disciples, As the Father has sent Me, so I am sending you. You're going to be redeemed. You're going to be saved. You're going to be forgiven. You're going to have the life of Christ coursing through you. Fantastic. That comes with a call. 
And as you embrace and accept all that redemption is about, you will then be released into my redemptive work for other people. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And it raises these kinds of questions. Do you have the passion of Christ in you? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to suffer in ways that inconvenience you? That's like suffering 101. Oh, I don't want to do that. A little inconvenience. Are you willing to suffer in ways that ridicule? That take the scorn and the sneers of other people in ways that bring hits to your reputation? Oh, he's one of those people. Oh, she's going to be that kind of person. Are you willing to suffer in ways that absolutely undermine the American dream? Now listen, more than we like to admit, we have this American dream thing deep within the DNA of who we are. We've grown up in it. Our parents grew up in it. Our grandparents grew up in it. It's something that's been going on for multiple generations. And so, we find ourselves, as Daniel Borston described in his work about the American dream, where we expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious. We expect luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin. We expect to be constantly on the move, but neighborly and connected with people. We expect to revere God, but we also want to be God. So here's the fact of the matter, friends. Because our culture, our American culture, has been so thoroughly impacted by a Judeo-Christian ethic and faith and way of life, most of what's true of the Christian life works well in our society. So we've just found out that if you'll be faithful in your marriage, that tends to work out better for you than if you're not faithful in your marriage. And we've just found out that if you will stay clean of drugs and the intoxicating effects of alcohol, that tends to work better for you than if you're getting plastered all the time. And we've just found out that if you'll do a hard day's work for a hard day's pay, that tends to work out better than sloth and, and, and being uh, you know a, a mooch and a bum and things like that. And we've just kind of found out that honesty tends to work better than uh, conniving and deception and lies and things like that. And so, so much that is a part of the Judeo-Christian ethic has worked its way into our culture and we've just found out it tends to work better that way anyway. And you know that that kind of ethic is not around our globe. And so, to live in those kinds of ways in other places on our globe is costly. And to live overtly for Christ and to name His name as the King and the Lord of your life is costly. But here's the rest of the story. 
because our country has been the way that it has, we've kind of been inoculated. See, we've come to a point where if something is not advantageous for me, if something is costly to me, if, some, if something demands some suffering for me, that's bad. When the Scriptures affirm, that's actually good. And so, the inoculation of the American dream, where everything is just kind of tended to work out in the Judeo-Christian ethic anyway, has left us shunning, running, trying to escape from anything that is costly or of a suffering nature to us. Another apostle, the Apostle James, said it to us this way in chapter 1, Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Joy is not found in the absence of suffering. Joy is not found in the accumulation of all the stuff that you can accumulate. Joy is not found in the climbing of whatever ladders and, and, and making of whatever achievements. Joy is found in you seizing opportunities that come your way through troubles and trials. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, perfect and complete, needing nothing, there you are in that state of joy. Now, what we're talking about today kind of fits a category more of what we sometimes say around here is Christianity 401. Okay? It's a little more substantive to think about and to grasp that the invitation to redemption with all of its costly implications that I will no longer be my own, that I will be His, and that I'll be at His disposal, and that I'll have to be responsible, responsible to all the little promptings and stirrings and callings that He has in my life, that that actually is the path to joy. Not the path to escape trial, tribulation, problems, wounds, and hurts. Now, I've made a number of choices over the last few weeks to literally immerse myself in the circumstances and the situations, the problems, the pains, um, the things that are stabbing people in, in deep and profound ways. I've been immersed in those things with dozens of people over the last few weeks. Why would you do that, Scott? Simply because God opened those doors. Simply because God invited me into those chapters of those lives and, and those particular scenarios. It hadn't been fun. I've lost a little bit of sleep. Uh, it's tore at and it's done some ripping on my own heart. My emotions have been out of kilter. Um, it's been costly. And I don't mean to overly dramatize the situation. I'm just saying that is a part of living the Christ life. Your life is not your own. It's His. And so, for one more time, in these days where we've been making our way through the Gospels, talking about the good news that God saves people, I'm going to ask you these same three questions one more time. Will you surrender to the Lordship of Christ? Clearly, 
hopefully, understanding what's involved in that transaction when you surrender. Will you do that? If you haven't already, will you be public about that in a number of ways that He'll call you to be public about that? In the way that you talk, in the way that you behave, in the way that you interact, as well as the, the initial step of baptism that we've talked about around here many times. And will you be on call for any time God doesn't stir in you to share something about the gospel promise with others? The gospel hope. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to have just a few minutes for you to continue praying for yourself. We're going to have three of our leaders in the back of the room. If you'd like to be prayed for, you can just slip back there for a moment. Let them pray for you. If you've been wrestling with this thing about, I think I want to have a relationship with Christ, but I just don't know all, all that's involved in that, go back there and pray with them. Let them pray for you to receive Christ. You, you need to be prayed for about some other commitment, about how you're going to be public, how you're going to be sharing the gospel, how you're going to be faithful to all that God's... You know, let them pray for you if you need to uh, have the need to, to be prayed for at that time. So let me pray for you now. We'll have this little time of prayer, and then we'll continue. Father... Whenever we think about redemption, we just can't get over the fact that You would slip out of glory, incarnate Yourself in flesh, take on all the fallenness and brokenness of this world, and redeem us. So for those of us that have been redeemed, we are forever grateful. We are forever changed. And we're praying today for our friends that are still at the point of decision about redemption. We pray for our friends to get it. To surrender. To come to You. And we thank You that Your arms are open wide that you'll receive and that you'll embrace, that you will forgive, that you will save, that you will redeem. So, Father, I pray it's the prayer of everyone in this room right now. Have your way. Have your way with my life. Mold me. Make me after your will. While I am yielded. Instead.